People are the most consequential and dangerous forces on Earth. Well, personality psychology is about the nature of human nature. It's about people. And wouldn't that be useful to know? I mean, it seems to me, I can't, I can't think of a more important problem. You're listening to the Science of Personality podcast, brought to you by Hogan Assessments, the global leader in personality assessment and leadership development since 1987. Your hosts are Hogan Chief Science Officer and world-renowned personality psychologist, Dr. Ryan Sherman, along with Hogan PR Manager and resident storyteller, Blake Lepp. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Science of Personality podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Sherman, along with my co-host, as always, Blake Lepp. Say hello, Blake. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Science of Personality podcast, episode 90. Today, Ryan and I are joined by Hogan's Managing Director of Asia Pacific, Krista Pedersen, and Hogan's Senior Consultant, Dr. Anne-Marie Payment, to discuss personality differences across cultures. For instance, do different types of leaders emerge in different markets? Also, what does it mean for cross-border business and international resource management? In this episode, we'll address these very important questions and so much more. So with that, Krista, Anne-Marie, is there anything else you want the audience to know about you before we dive into the episode? Hi, everyone. I'm Krista. I'm from Tulsa, Oklahoma, which is actually the headquarters of Hogan, but I'm now living in China. I've been here off and on for almost 15 years. I'm the managing director of the APAC markets, like Blake said, um, which means that I manage our distributors in the market. We don't actually have direct business in our global markets. We work through trusted distributors to sell, market, and localize our assessments and products. And I am focused on growing the Hogan ecosystem in these markets, which stretches from India to New Zealand and just about every market in between. Hi, everyone. This is Anne-Marie. I was born and raised in Montreal, Canada, but I relocated to Sydney, Australia about four years ago. And I work with Krista to grow the Hogan ecosystem in Asia Pacific, but I specifically look after our distributors uh, who provides um, clients with Hogan solutions in Oceania. So Australia, New Zealand, Japan, Singapore and Malaysia, Thailand, Indonesia and India. And most of our work is really bringing awareness and helping people understand the value Hogan can bring for them and their organization. Well, I want to say thanks so much to Kristen and Marie for, for joining us today. I've uh, been looking forward to having you on the podcast for a long time. Obviously, the work that you're doing in those markets is really, really huge. I mean, everybody knows uh, that, that globally, uh, markets throughout Asia, India uh, are seen as um, the most uh, promising markets, some of the grow, uh, fastest growing markets going forward. I'll also say, just on a personal note, uh, it's fantastic to work with you when, when I get to come visit over into your markets to go see your distributors. It's always great to work with you, whether we're visiting distributors in Australia or China or wherever it might be. It's always a lot of fun to work with you and, and to get together with you. So thanks for, thanks for uh, getting up early in the morning for you to join us today. Yeah, absolutely. We love having you here in APEC as well, Ryan. Absolutely. Well, <laughs> and, and just a little fun fact, uh, I guess, particularly for Anne-Marie, um, I think we've mentioned this on the podcast before, but you know, whenever I look at the location uh, of where all, our, all of our downloads come from, Sydney, Australia is actually number one on no all of our cities. That More people listen in Sydney, Australia than any other location. It's very close with wow. New York City, but uh, typically Sydney is at the top. It, it may fluctuate here and there, but for the most part, Sydney is our is our where our biggest audience is. So it's really cool and, and interesting. So Anne Marie, you're talking to a lot of people right there in your in your hometown. Wow. Hey, Australia. Um, <laughs> yeah, hi Australia. But also um I know that Ryan is very well appreciated and regarded in Australia. So I'm not too surprised about that. Blake, we might have to have you join Ryan next time he visits to Australia. <laughs> yeah, sign me up. I will I will be there in a heartbeat. Well, actually, I'll be there in 18 hours, but... <laughs> 24, 24, even more. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a long trip. <laughs> okay, well, uh, let's get into the episode then. So uh, first, and, and either one of you can take the, this question, uh, but... Can you describe Hogan's point of view on the topic of cross-cultural personality? Yes, I would love to do that. This is Krista here. 
Um, this is actually a, a topic of passion for me. I love talking about Hogan's point of view on cross-cultural personality. It's something that we have actually done a lot of work on, uh, but we don't talk about actually that much. Uh, but I would like to anchor it in um, really the theory behind Hogan, um, our assessments, which is socioanalytic theory. This is actually a theory that Dr. Hogan basically um, invented. And it, sh it the, the um, idea behind the theory is that humans across the globe evolved to get along, get ahead, and find meaning. And we have found that this is true no matter what society um, is being measured in the world. Uh, some societies, for example, more indigenous societies, may prioritize getting along and finding meaning, but others may prioritize getting ahead, for example, if we think about European colonization, et cetera. But we do find that um, societies and people around the world are trying to get along, get ahead, and find meaning. Um, despite this, our research suggests that within any society, market, or country, or group of people, there is a broad range of individual differences in how people go about trying to get along, get ahead, and find meaning. And this variance occurs in every population I mean, we're all humans and we all have individual and unique personality characteristics, and we do not see certain genders, ethnicities, or other groups of people having significantly different trends. And this is cool because it is why using personality is a fair and equal way to select and develop our talent. Um, and despite knowing that personality doesn't differentiate between different groups of people, uh, Hogan still always checks to ensure that there is no adverse impact in our results, um, that we are not actually accidentally measuring differences between groups because we acknowledge that different power structures exist um, that may create less than equitable environments for different groups of people. So it's always really good to check and make sure um, that our assessments are being fair and equitable. But essentially, you can use the assessments uh, to measure very fairly across different groups of people. So um, that's... Uh, Really, we have done a lot of research on this, and uh, we have found that there are not significant differences between different groups or markets or countries. Um, so that's kind of our, our point of view on, on, uh, on cross-cultural personality. Well, well, if I can expand on that just a little bit, Krista, um, uh, the, the point that you're making there, I think, is, is it goes even broader than the just Hogan. So it's, I, I think people, when I talk to people about this, uh, about the same set of findings that we have where we find, you know, that, that the personality scores are pretty much the same across most cultures, a lot of people say that's surprising. What about cultural differences? Aren't cultures different from each other? And of course, cultures are different in a, in a whole variety of way, ways. But what, we, what we're talking about is those individual sets of behaviors, the behaviors you described, we don't see differences in one of the questions is, why is that the case? And, and I think that, um, and by the way, we're not the only ones that, that, that find uh, very little differences across cultures globally. Uh, other kinds of personality assessments, if you look at the academic literature on personality assessments globally, they find very similar kinds of things. So it's not like there's something secret about Hogan and the way Hogan does it, although I will say that the way we do our translations ensures, helps ensure more equivalence than, than say, others. But um, but in general, we know that there aren't these big personality differences. But I think the question then is, why is that the case? Why is it the case that in different cultures, the same set of personality traits, the same set of behaviors and thought patterns show up? And I think the answer is, is actually right there in plain sight in what, what you said earlier, Krista, which is that we know all humans have certain fundamental problems that they have to solve, right? We, we know that, that, that all humans, because they live in groups, have to solve the problem of getting along. How do I get along with other people? If I, if I try to go on my own by myself, it's very unlikely that I'll survive. Um, how do we get ahead within our group? We live in a group and there's differences in status. How, do I, how am I going to uh, interact with those other people of different levels of status? How can I attain status within my group? Um, and then what's the big picture of all this? What's this all for? What's the purpose that we're here for? The, those same questions uh, uh, all humans have to ask themselves and all humans have to find answer to those. And so my answer to that question is why do we see personality show up the same way in all cultures is because all humans have to answer the same set of questions. And this is a set of behaviors. And that's what I really see personality as this is a set of behaviors that's to help to help us design to answer that set of questions. I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that or, or what your reaction to that is. 
Yeah, I think that's a great point, Ryan. And I mean, if anything, it's just, again, that concept that humans are humans, right? And we're not saying that societies uh, can't have different cultures, right? But the individuals within those societies um, seem to have uh, the similar characteristics or sets of behaviors across all societies. So um, we'll talk a little bit more, I think, about differences in um, cultures, but the individuals within those cultures, really, we find there's no uh, differences across the globe. Okay, so I guess the next question is, what about leadership? Are there differences across cultures and different markets whenever it comes to leadership? Um, absolutely. So, yes, we do see personality differences across markets in who gets to the top or, you know, in in terms of leadership emergence. And going back to Hogan's view of cross-cultural personality differences, um, we see that there are different ends or outcomes that are valued across cultures through those leadership emergence. And, um, but also for uh, two cultures that value the same outcomes, uh, there are different ways to an end or achieving the same outcome. And maybe it would be helpful if I give an example. Um, I'll take a very easy one to start with and one that's very close, uh, very close to home for me. Um, like when we, when we look at Hogan personality data of Canadian and French leaders, um, we see that both of those markets leaders value getting ahead. So leaders tend to score higher on power. However, uh, they will differ in how they do so. So Canada is a low-density population country, and we often see leaders in such markets scoring higher on interpersonal sensitivity, meaning that Canadian leaders tend to uh, get promoted and get ahead and gain, gain power by being warm, showing tact and diplomacy, while France, on the other hand, is um, a high-density population country. And so here we see leaders uh, tending to score lower on interpersonal sensitivity, meaning that organizations will tend to promote um, and value leaders who are not afraid to confront or challenge others directly and publicly. Um, and then um, I can take the, those same two cultures and give an example of how um, they may value um, they may value two different things, but they will take uh, the same approach to pursue what they value or what they find purpose in. And so um, another, another thing that we see in the Hogan personality data and especially in leader, leadership data is that uh, both Canada and France tend to have a majority of leaders who score high on learning approach. So, um, however, uh, Canadian leaders and French leaders will vary on where they find meaning in, in investing their learning efforts. So um, for what purpose, like Ryan said? So what we see is Canadian leaders do tend to score higher on commerce, while uh, French leaders will tend, will tend to score higher on aesthetics. And this means that Canadian leaders tend to get ahead by being continuous learners, just like French leaders. But Canadian leaders will have a stronger focus in their learning on achieving tangible business outcomes. While French leaders, um, they're also being lifelong learners, but they will find meaning in their learning when it taps in the value of beauty, innovation, and aesthetics. And this has real impact on a culture and a country's reputation as well. Um, after all, we, uh, you know, like the, the most well-known French businesses are in the fashion and beauty industry, like L'Oréal, Chanel, uh, Christian Dior, Hermès, that I know that Brian loves very much. And um, for Canadian companies, well, uh, the type of companies that are more known worldwide or well-regarded are like banks like Royal Bank of Canada or Shopify, the e-commerce company, and uh, CN, Canadian National Railway Company which build freight railways across Canada and the U.S. to get commercial goods uh, transported from different locations. So one thing I think that's really interesting to point out, Anne-Marie, is that 
Um, I think we need to make a, a distinction when we're looking at data sets between culture and country, because you have just showed a comparison between a couple of different countries, right? We're looking at Canada, we're looking at France, and we do see that different leadership styles emerge in these different countries. I think a lot of people like to talk about culture, right? French culture. Um, but that becomes very hard to measure because we can't say, you know, where culture starts and ends. How do we measure something that seems a bit nebulous? Like um, Canada has influence of French culture, right? But it's, does it, should it be considered as part of French culture? And if we were looking at this from a business perspective, clearly there are two different uh, markets that we're working with here, right? And so when we look at personality data, we, we try to measure per country and we're not trying to measure an entire culture because that uh, is quite impossible to do. Um, and to your point, uh, we do see that within a country's borders, um, there are a lot of different factors that influence uh, really what type of leaders are promoted to the top or what type of leaders, leaders tend to emerge. So uh, one example of this is uh, China, for example. I, I'm here in China and we know that China is a communist country, right? It has um, different currency, different uh sets of laws, the way that things are structured are much different than um, the US or the UK. And consequently, we see the different, different types of leaders in business emerging. Um, so uh, in China, we actually see that uh, leaders in business tend to be lower on agency or what Hogan calls uh, ambition. Uh, and they have, tend to be higher on conscientiousness or what Hogan calls prudence. And so this type of leadership is more consensus building. So uh, with lower in ambition, it's less willing to take the individual lead, uh, but more willing to build consensus, you know, get work together as a group and then move forward. And then with that higher on prudence or, con or conscientiousness, um, it's uh, creating a really, really uh, structured plan in order to enact the, the decisions that we've made together as a group. And that's very different than the style of leadership that we see in the U.S. or the U.K., which is actually the opposite. So that's higher on ambition and lower on prudence. And so with that higher on ambition, it's taking the individual lead, you know, setting the strategy on your own. And then with lower on prudence, it's letting others um, figure out how to get it done. So it's using more individual charisma, uh, charm, and then um, setting the strategy and then uh, letting others take the lead. And we know that uh, the U.S., of course, is a democracy or a republic, if you may. Um, and it's that individual um, kind of agency that helps people get to the top versus China, where traditionally in Chinese culture or in, in communism, especially um, 20, 30 years ago, it was really the technical people um, who tended to rise to the top. You know, they've been at their... Uh, they would call them a denway or a work unit. And the longer you were at the work unit, the more you'd get promoted. So it was really based on tenure and it was based on your technical skills versus individual charisma. And so it's really interesting because um, if we look at the different markets, we can see that different leaders emerge in, in each market. Well, I, I think that's a super important point because when we talk about you know, the fact that there are no differences sort of at the population level, that doesn't mean you don't see differences, uh, as Krista pointed out correctly, is sort of a lot of the analyses, a lot of the, uh, the way that we have to look at this at the country level, but it doesn't, but I think it also, some of that also ties in with culture too, right? That, that we know that, um, that what leads, what, what gets someone into a leadership position, what, what creates that leadership emergence can, can differ by country. And I think these are some amazing, you know, these are fantastic examples. I think Japan is another similar one we've looked at where we see the kinds of behaviors that, that lead to, to leadership emergence in Japan, um, more self-effacing kinds of things are, are, that's more valued there that versus the sort of um, self-promoting kinds of behaviors you might see in, in the United States. So I think that, that to me that that's a, a, a really important point. And I think the point that you made there, Krista, about country versus culture is also worth talking about, right? So uh, you, uh, the example that Anne-Marie used with, with talking about France, uh, you mentioned you know French culture in Canada, but there's also French culture in, in, in Belgium. There's also French culture in, in, in Switzerland. And I think we've talked about um, in, in, in Asia, we've talked about how culture bleeds from one market to another market, right? Or, or one uh one political geopolitical country to another right and so um it is really hard to say you know where to draw the line on culture or where to say well this is that culture versus that culture because 
more and more cultures are becoming blended, which is actually becoming a very important topic in psychology more broadly, is about this, this notion of cultural blendedness and and what, what is a culture that's blended of multiple cultures? Is it, is it some combination of those cultures or is there some emergent phenomenon that comes in there as well? And so, so I think it is important to point out that the analyses that we're doing, when we talk about a lot of these differences and the differences in leadership emergence, uh, it really is at the country level because that's where it's convenient. That's where it's convenient to collect data. But it's hard to say, is that uh, directly a cultural thing or how tight is it with culture? It can, it can be very difficult to, to say that specifically. Yeah, I think one point to make, too, is that Hogan um, and our assessments are used to uh, predict performance, right? And we're used in businesses. And so I think using country or market data is really helpful for organizations who are wanting to get specific insights for doing business in a country. Um, or in a specific market. And so if that's what we're, we're thinking about doing that, we don't really need to worry about broader cultural issues. I mean, like to your point, uh, is uh, the Congo, you know, that also, they're a French speaking nation. Does that consider French culture? Things like that. Um, we can leave that for the cultural psychologists to kind of ponder over. But if we're actually using assessments to predict performance in these different markets, looking at leadership style per market is very uh, useful um, for practitioners. Well, well, let me also tag one more thing onto that, uh, Krista, which is that um, is that in thinking about uh, about leadership, so a leadership emergence, we know that 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 can vary what what those personality characteristics vary. But one of the things that we do know is that even if you have these differences in personality characteristics among the leaders, and you're talking about predicting outcomes, that personality still predicts the same set of outcomes, right? In, in all of these cultures, right? So, so that's it. I think another point when we talk about seeing very small cultural differences of any cultural differences in, in average personality scores, we also know that we don't see differences in the outcomes that personality predicts, which I think is really important because what that means is if you're a high adjustment individual, there's the same set of consequences for you no matter what culture you're in. And I think that's something we didn't touch on earlier, and I think it's important for, for listeners to know. Yeah, that's a great point, Ryan. And we've actually done some research on that Um uh, for Japan, you had mentioned the, the Japanese market um, and how really uh, leaders in Japan are focused more on getting along than necessarily getting ahead. But at the same time, we're, we our research has shown that from 360 ratings, the leaders that are actually trying to get ahead and, and take charge actually uh, are rated higher um, on leadership characteristics than those that are uh, lower on ambition or, or trying to focus more on getting along. So that's kind of an interesting point to make. Anne-Marie, you had something to say. Um, I was about to talk about that research too. <laughs> so, um, yeah, um, I found it super interesting. Uh, you know, oftentimes we get questions about, um, okay, so you do see leadership uh, differences in leadership emergence, but there's probably a differences in leadership effectiveness as well. And when when looking at uh, Jap Japan leadership data, we actually found that, um, yes, there are differences in leadership emergence, but in terms of leadership effectiveness, just like you said, Krista and Ryan, um, the same thing seems to predict leadership effectiveness. Well, okay, so we're obviously in a world now where these particular cultures aren't necessarily localized. And sometimes leaders are leading uh, from one country, but they're leading people from another. So in a global workplace where more and more people are managing international teams consisting of these individuals from different cultures, I'm curious what obstacles might these leaders face? That's a great question, Blake. Uh, we have had so many people in the market ask us this question, like I'm leading a global team. What do I need to know about cultural differences? Or I'm going to another market. Are any, there are any tools to help? Um, so we do get this question quite a lot. And one of the simple ways um, that you could use, like Hogan, for example, um, to really help you gain a broader understanding of how you could lead a multicultural team or lead a team in a different market is really understanding the leadership style of your own market. Um, and then also looking at what other markets and uh, look like in the leadership styles of other markets, uh, because that will give you um, some information about the expectations for leadership. And like Anne-Marie said, really effective leadership, um, we see that we can predict, we, that doesn't necessarily differ from market to market, but it is important to understand 
um, the markets that you're working in. And so many of the cross-cultural tools out there tend to address issues very broadly across entire countries or markets. Uh, you know, you hear the, a lot of uh, the, the, the talk about like, oh, the East, you know, the East is very collective and the West is very individualistic. Uh, but we'd actually caution against that. We'd actually encourage people to look at the different markets um, and countries that that people come from. So, for example, I know that we just used uh, we just talked about um, Japan. Uh, but one way, for example, that you could use this is looking at the scores of leaders in Japan. And we note that they actually tend to be higher on the HDS, the Hogan Development Survey, scale of cautious. And so leaders who are higher on conscious, cautious tend to check their work a lot, uh, tend to be afraid of making mistakes, and tend to do things a little bit more slowly, slow down the process. And um, and so when you're working with someone uh, who is from Japan or who is used to that type of leadership style, you should just be aware of that. This doesn't mean that every single Japanese person is high on cautious. That's not what it means at all. And as Ryan pointed out, individuals within a population uh, have the potential to have any sort of uh, score on cautious, right? But what it does mean is they're probably used to working in an environment where cautious leadership behaviors are welcomed or, or normalized. And so... Um, you need to be aware of that as a leader. So when you see your Japanese colleague maybe taking a little bit more time to make a decision or uh, maybe they're, they're a little bit slower on the process um, than their Chinese colleague who tends to be lower on cautious, then you can actually help them and uh, understand, hey, uh, this team, this is our team culture and you don't have to be afraid of making a mistake. Um, so as a leader, just understanding uh, where your team members are from, the culture that they're from, and even the leadership style within that culture can be very helpful in uh, really becoming a more effective leader and encouraging people where they're at. I absolutely agree with you, Krista, on that. And maybe here it's um, like my psychologist background speaking, but yeah, one of the biggest obstacles for global leaders, I would say, is like being unaware of their unconscious biases and the, the impact it might have on their efficacy and reputation. So we don't want them to fall in the trap that their personal strength that have helped them be successful in a specific market um, in the past. It doesn't mean that that will necessarily be as effective or uh, be as valued in the same way in another culture or in another market. And so it's really important to, um, it's really important for those leaders to have this strategic self-awareness that we talk so often at Hogan, so they can really adjust to different environments quickly and work with uh, different partners and employees of other cultures. You know, I think these are these are really great points. And the only thing I would add here is, and I think sort of, sort of the the uh, maybe broader theme in all of this is the importance of localization, right? That it's not so much, oh, I'm going to work in this culture, and therefore I need to you know treat everybody in one particular way because that's what's expected in this culture. And in some respects, that that could be the case. There could be an expectation that leaders in a particular culture behave a particular way. And, and to Krista's point, you may want to do that, but I would. I would even want to get more local. I would want to look at that organization that you're going to be working in. What's expected in that organization, in that culture? How do, how do leaders behave there? What kinds of expectations do followers have for their leaders there? And then get even more personalized, even more localized. Go down to the level of the individuals, the individuals that you're going to be working with. What are their expectations? What did they uh, think that, that their managers should uh, act and, and be like as leaders? And I think that ultimately that points to the, you know, the arrow to the direction of why it's so useful to have individual personality assessments, because we do know it doesn't matter what culture we're in. People everywhere around the world show the entire spectrum of personalities, trait scores. And so just because you're in a particular culture doesn't mean you have uh, leaders or even workers who want to uh, be led in a particular style. And so I think it's really, really important for leaders in this, in this circumstance to, to get local, to get local information. The more local you can get, the better, rather than just going with, with broad generalizations. I completely, I completely agree with that, Ryan. I think it's a mistake for people to, uh, and it causes stereotypes for people to just lump in um, individuals that have clear 
uh, needs, you know, values and uh, preferences and lump them in with the broader groups. And so this is why, I mean, even with our, we talked earlier about measuring country versus culture. Um, and I, I mentioned, you know, the East versus the West, but I think if, if someone says, oh, the Western culture is like this, or the Eastern culture is like that, it really does cause stereotypes and it doesn't uh, view uh, individuals as individuals. And so I think your um, idea of localizing is really important and it does stop um, stereotypes and it actually increases fairness and, and equity um, in working with people. Yeah. And if I can add something like um, if I can add something to what Krista, you just said, and mostly Ryan, what what you just said, like something, something that I find kind of um, not disappointing, but in, in the sense that there's so much more we could we can be doing with personality assessment data than just selection and development. Um, and you've perfectly illustrated how, how we can also uh, learn more about one, one's, one organization's culture or even more like, so personality assessment can also help global organization really understand their global culture versus the culture of their regional offices versus the culture of a specific team. And we, we forget that we can really leverage this data to and like that organizational data or that group level personality assessment data to drive uh, strategic talent management conversation. And that's all thanks to having like st standardized personality assessment to really have like a comprehensive and universal framework to assess group across culture. It's like having, having um, a personality assessment like Hogan for me is like having one like a big Google Translate to understand to understanding uh, everyone's behavior. That's that's a great point, Anne Marie. And I also, you know, again, not to plug Hogan too much here, but we are all from Hogan. Uh, that's really the the benefit of having all three assessments: the HPI, HDS, and the MVPI, because the MVPI tells us a lot about culture, a lot about organizational culture. And not just looking at, you know, a five-factor model-based personality assessment, but also really understanding uh, the derailers and uh, the modus values preferences uh, really is beneficial and gives a great picture of all, um, a full picture of personality and not just looking at, you know, the behavioral aspects of, you know, the bright side. I, I actually have a quick follow-up question here before we get into the next one. Based on the work, or at least this close to you are to some of these these organizations or at least the the clients that our distributors have are any of the these organizations are there dei initiatives uh handling this is helping leaders understand these uh international team members that they might have yes uh but it it depends on each each market um so for example in australia and new zealand um DNI will focus not like a lot on um, like it will focus a lot on understanding p and making sure that we're treating people from different uh, ethnic background in a fair way. Uh, but in some some markets where the population is culturally um, more homogeneous, um, D and I will mostly focus on like um, gender issues instead of um, cultural issues. Okay, so yeah, I just I wanted to follow up with that one because that was I was just curious, so I just wanted yeah, to ask that question. No, it's a really good question. On. Yeah, that, I mean, like this is also tied into a broader question. A lot of organizations kind of ask the question of uh, what's more important, organizational culture or local culture. 
Um, and this is something I guess Ryan, uh, Ryan touched on just a little bit is localizing and understanding both the local culture, but also the organizational culture. And so we have also worked with organizations who are global organizations to try to build, for example, a high potential model. And uh, we know that a one size fits all high potential model has the risks of possibly um, having poor results for DEI. And so the question becomes, should we have one global model that fits the um, overall broader global organizational culture? Or should we take into account some of these local nuances that maybe um, has our high potential um, group uh, be a bit more diverse, but it also causes some, um, I wouldn't say conflict, but it's a little bit um, not aligned with the over global, overall global high potential model. So we've worked with organizations to kind of work with them and try to both create a, a more inclusive um, uh, organizational culture at a global level, but also include some of the local uh, nuances in the local markets, if that makes sense. No, that makes perfect sense. Uh, okay, so sorry to, to get us a little bit off track there, but moving on to the next question. And it's actually these next two are, are, are very similar, but whenever we get asked by, by people, I think, Ryan, you, I mean, we were, you were on an interview the other day where I think this came up, but um, you know, we focus on selection, but we also focus on development. So my first one is how can global companies leverage valid personality assessments to select leaders that will effectively manage individuals from different cultures? Well, I hope my answer will be consistent with uh, the one Ryan gave, but um, in terms of um, leaders managing individuals from different cultures, Hogan has actually done research on the personality of inclusive leaders. So those are leaders that leverages diversity and also uh, consider other, others' background before taking action. And um, so organization can select leaders who score on these traits or, the, or these um, personality ca characteristics that we have identified. And one thing I will say about that is um, what I found the most interesting in this research is that inclusive leaders continue to treat others in a fair and considerate way, even when they're under stress or bored. So their HPI data seems to be uh, very consistent with their HDS data as well. And um, so they, even when they're stressed or bored, uh, they will remain humble about what they know and they will, they will be willing to admit when they have made a mistake, uh, like unintentionally saying something or behave in a way that might have caused discomfort for someone with a different background than them. And, um, and yeah, we, Hogan can, can help you, uh, or our distributors can also, uh, help you if you're, uh, based internationally, uh, select leaders based on those inclusive leaders, personality characteristics. Well, yeah, I, I think that that's, uh, that's a, gr a great answer. And it is also one that I did not talk with the, <laughs> with the reporter about because, uh, I kind of forgot that we had done that research, but you're right. Yeah. We have a, we actually have a great profile for, uh, helping organizations identify leaders who, uh, are more likely to support DEI initiatives or more likely to promote DEI within the organization. Um, and so we can help a lot of organizations do that, uh, as well, find leaders who, who are going to, um, have values consistent with the values that the organization is trying to to put forward. Uh, the one thing that I did talk with a reporter about, which is much more technical and less exciting stuff, I think, uh, which is about equivalence testing. <laughs> and we have, I, I mean, I'm, I'm very fortunate because uh, I have an amazing research team here uh, of PhD IO psychologists that do fantastic things with data when it comes to equivalence testing. And, and for me, the, the way that we can be sure that our assessments are valid uh, across a whole variety of cultures. And, and again, we, we talked earlier, uh, Krista mentioned that, you know, that culture and country aren't really the same thing. Uh, and a lot of our analyses on equivalence testing aren't really at the culture level either, but they're at the language level, the language of the assessment, which can really only be an approximation for culture, much in the same way a country can only be approximation for culture. And when we do this testing across languages, what we consistently find is that our assessments perform the same way across languages. And, and, and this, this testing is pretty sophisticated stuff. Um, top of the line psychometrics, if you were, you know, were an academic in, in psychometrics uh, testing, this would be exactly how they would teach you to do equivalence testing across cultures. 
and um, we're or, or in, in, in across cultures, across countries, or whatever. In our case, it's across languages. And what we just consistently find, um, and look, this isn't some magic trick that we consistently find this. I mean, we, we intentionally test items like relentlessly. My team is is constantly testing new items, trying out new items. And when they don't work, when items aren't going to be equivalent across cultures, we find new ones. So it's not that it's some, wow, how lucky was Hogan to find all these items that work across cultures. No, we, we threw out a bunch of items that didn't work. We keep the items that work really well and are valid across cultures. So so I think that that's, that's a really important reason why we can say, hey, we can use our assessments to select leaders uh, who, who can manage effectively uh, because we know that our assessments work the same way in, in a variety of languages. I know you said that's not exciting, Ryan, but I love talking about this because I do think it's exciting. Um, I think that Hogan has best practices for translation with regards to psychometric assessments, and that's something we don't often talk about. Uh, maybe I can give an example just to um, show uh, an example of a, uh, an item that has been adapted, or I think it's one of our older items, but we had an item that says, I don't trust anyone who doesn't drink, like drink alcohol, right? Well, in some of our uh, markets like Indonesia or in the UAE, where it is uh, Muslim societies uh, or has a, a large population of uh, Muslims, that item was not working really well. And so we actually adapted it to, I don't trust anyone who doesn't have a good time. And so that way uh, we found that the response rates were actually more in line with what was in the local population. And so we actually adapted that item to make sure that we were measuring the same construct um, in the local language, like uh, Indonesian, for example, as we were in the US English. So that's kind of an example of, of one of the adaptations that we do. But I do find it exciting that Hogan has a lot of best practices in not only translation, but we haven't talked a lot about norms yet, but we have a wonderfully representative um, global norm. And we also have um, many local norms. And I know that's something that not a lot of other assessment um, firms I mean, like a lot of assessment firms are just talking about, should we have local norms or shouldn't we? But we've actually had local norms for many years and we have just recently updated our local norms as well as the global norm. So, Well, I do want to say something about that translation process as well, Krista. And I, and I think what your example highlights is why it's so important that you do the translations with local psychologists, right? People who, who are there locally, they understand the psychological concepts they understand them in that culture. And that's why you can't just use something like Google Translate, which is great, right? Google Translate's fantastic. There's so many amazing things that it does. But literal translations of psychological concepts just don't work. Like when you have a psychological concept, you have to understand what that means. And you have to, you can't just word for word translate that. In many cases, you need to find a different wording, a different phrasing that has the same psychological meaning in that language or in that local culture um, to, to actually make sure make the items work equivalently. And so you're absolutely right. We use um, the best practices. And I think one of the reasons for that is, is the use of local psychologists in, in those regions. Yeah, exactly. You know, I think it's also kind of important to point out, based on, you know, we testing all these different items and things like that. I mean, that applies to also a variety of things. So if correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Ryan or Krista or Amory, whoever can answer this. But I, I mean, I believe the first version of the HPI was what, 600 items to where it's a third of that now, um, just based on finding out what works. Also, and I might mess this up because I'm not the psychologist here, but I believe there were items and I might be making this up, but I, I think something along these lines of, you know, I talk on the telephone X amount of times per day. Well, that item might be a little bit antiquated in a world of today where many people aren't talking on the phone as much or texting. So maybe things like that don't apply. So it's not just, you know, translations or cultural differences. I mean, we're looking at these things in a variety of areas to make sure that these assessments remain uh, the best in the industry. Uh, am I correct on that? Yeah, I mean, you're you're correct on both accounts, Blake. I mean, the, the original version of the HPI had many, many, many more items. Look, you you want to be as efficient as you can, right? So, so look, when you're making decisions about people, you, you know, you, there's a lot of ways you could do that. You can do job interviews are very common, but the question is, how can you be most efficient? How can you get the most information about an individual to help you make the best decisions you can about them? 
in, in, in the shortest amount of time. And, and it turns out that self-report personality assessments are one way to do that. So we try to be as efficient as we can with those assessments, making as few items as possible to get the most information out that you possibly can. And uh, yes, to your other point, we're, we're constantly updating items uh, for, for uh, uh, what I always call moderatism or changes to, to culture or changes to society more broadly um, to make sure that the items are still working the same way. Your, your point about telephones, things like that, those kinds of things change over time. And, and when we uh, have a team of people who works to update those items to, to stay, uh, to stay uh, relevant to today's, today's test takers. Well, okay. So let's move on to my, I guess, the second part of this question that focuses a little bit more on development. So how can these companies use personality assessments to better develop their current leaders to make them more successful managing across cultures? I think we touched on this a little bit earlier, um, especially with Ryan's point of making sure that we localize. So um, we encourage uh, organizations to emphasize the importance of understanding the target culture's leadership norms for cross-culture business success. So uh, make sure that you're understanding the leader expectations for whatever market you're going to or um, you're sending that leader to, or even if they're managing a team across um, different markets, uh, have them understand that leader, uh, that leader style, um, have ask us for benchmarks. You know, we can do benchmarks that show um, uh, what the leader emergence looks like for a number of different markets. Again, we have data in, I think it's a, a, over 144 different markets across the globe. And so we can easily really understand the leader emergence trends for the people we've assessed across the globe. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is, is, again, we've talked about the difference between emergence versus effectiveness. This is another concept I think that's um, quite uh, important at Hogan and what we talk a lot about, but our data, our benchmarks are based on emergence data. So what leaders are rising to the top? And if you've listened to any of Ryan's talks, you'll know that 70% of leaders are probably not effective. And so this means that 70% uh, or more of leaders are not effective. And so um, we uh, encourage you to also keep in mind that even though you look at what emerges in a, in a different market or, or country, um, that doesn't necessarily make them the most effective. Um, but, uh, I think earlier I had given the example of Chinese leadership versus us leadership. So again, in China, um, we see more of a low ambition, um, lower interpersonal sensitivity and higher prudence style of leadership. Um, and so again, these are leaders that are, are focused on getting along to get ahead. So consensus building, um, they're very tend to be a little bit more direct with that low interpersonal sensitivity and creating more structured plans for their team. Handholding is, is more expected. Um, so if you have, um, a leader, if that's an American that's used to the American style of leadership, that's high ambition, high interpersonal sensitivity, low prudence, more charismatic, and you send them to China to lead a team, you have some potential for conflict. Uh, Chinese employees may expect the leader to directly confront them about their mistakes and give them a highly structured approach for doing their work. But the American leader who uh, tends to be more charismatic and sets a strategy and has the team um, figure it out on their own is more likely to offer what we call the compliment sandwich, right? So you have to compliment someone first and then maybe give a little bit of um, feedback in a very positive way and then end with another compliment and positivity. Uh, but the Chinese team member will be really expecting a more direct answer. Um, and so that's really important to know for the American leader who's being sent to China or who's leading a Chinese team is they're going to have to be adjust their style to be a bit more direct if they want to be more effective for that particular team. So um, some things to think about, but really understanding uh, the target um, leader expectations, um, the, the, the leader expectations for the target uh, market can be really helpful. And Blake, I know that you're really interested in um, learning more about how we can, like how Hogan can be used for selection and development. But again, here at even even at, at a like organizational level or a, a talent analytics level, you can use personality assessment uh, to kind of help you figure out if your global culture or some regional offices culture 
are are really aligned and in support of your strategic plan. So we've all heard the famous Peter Drucker um, Peter Drucker quote that says, "Culture eats strategy for breakfast." Well, no matter how strong your strategic plan is, um, your plans will be held back if your organization or a specific regional office does not share an effective culture aligned to that strategy. And so you can really map personality data at a group level to, to see that. And I think it's, it's a very interesting uh, way to reuse data that companies are already um, leveraging to guide selection and development of their leaders um, and, and really bring more insights at a more strategic group level or um, organizational level here. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point, Emery. You've raised it uh, here a couple of times, which is that there is a lot more that you can get out of personality data than just you know, simply, you know, your own individual feedback and your own individual results. You can learn lots about the other people that you're working with. You can learn lots about different teams that, that you have as part of your organization. If you're a big multinational corporation, obviously you can learn about different divisions and business units and different regions and how things are operating there. And, and I think you're right, Emery. Uh, many, many people don't take advantage of that data that they have and the ability to use that data in a much more uh, comprehensive way, in a way that can provide those kind of uh, insights into how, uh, for example, a region or a business unit might not be um, uh, aligned necessarily with a cultural strategy. That doesn't necessarily mean that they have the wrong people there, but it might mean that um, that there needs to be a shift in thinking or a shift in, in planning for that particular, or maybe the way that things work in that particular region just have to be that way because that's the the culture of the region, and it doesn't fit with the global strategy. And, and this point this points to something that Krista mentioned earlier, which is about this notion of of a single profile that this whole profile works globally and maybe that doesn't really work maybe it doesn't work across the globe and maybe it does lead to um, some exclusionary criteria for certain individuals from certain groups if, if you try to apply that kind of thing so I think that's where it becomes really really valuable to to use that kind of data uh, the other thing that that Krista you mentioned I think is really uh, an important note uh, you know, is, is about style and behavior. And this really goes back to the first question that, that we, we talked about earlier uh, in, in this episode, which is that it, it's not so much that, uh, that, that there are differences in behavior, right? So we know that there's, um, uh, well, okay, so the example that you gave had to do with being direct versus indirect, right? So what I would say is that there's a, the way someone is direct or the way someone is indirect can vary by culture, but at the end of the day, there's still directness and indirectness. And when we say that there's no cultural differences or no language differences or no country differences in personality, what we're talking about is the scores on the assessments, but how it shows up, whether it's a compliment sandwich or whether it's some other technique of delivering the message, uh, I think that's what can vary by culture, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I think one thing to clarify with my example there is even though, you know, people in China have the opportunity to be, um, you know, really high on interpersonal sensitivity or really low on interpersonal sensitivity, what we're seeing is that the leader trends are that the leaders who raise to the top tend to be lower. And so the style of leadership and the expectations people have of leadership is that their leaders are going to be more direct or they tend to be more direct in their communication style. And so even though someone, an individual may have higher interpersonal sensitivity, they may behave or have that expectation and learn to adapt to whatever um, style is going on. And so that that's one point that's excellent to make, um, Ryan. Uh, another point I'd like to make is if, if anyone here is interested, we, Amory and I have um, written a couple of blogs on uh, different markets and differences in markets. So if you're really interested in this topic, you can check out the Hogan um, blog. And uh, we wrote one on Japan. I think uh, we will have one on Thailand coming out shortly. Amory, is there another one we wrote? Uh, we have our Indonesian distributor expert right. who uh, conducted some research specifically on uh, the Indonesian market, and um, and they 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 oh they dove is that correct? <laughs> that would they be dive? correct. 
Yeah, they dove. Okay, yeah. <laughs> thanks. Um, they dove even deeper and looked at specific industries. So uh, within within um, Indonesia, in the uh, finance and banking industry, and also in the oil and energy industry. So uh, here again, these are these are some data that Hogan uh, and these are some insights that Hogan can provide. It's really interesting. Um, I think for internal mobility, um, it's. Uh, internal mobility, but ex- I, I mean it uh, like international mobility within an internal company. It's super interesting uh, to have those data, especially if you have like, um, if you know, most leaders do not work in HR. Um, like there are many other departments in which leaders work in that are very data driven. So providing them with data driven personality insights uh, is can be really interesting for them. Yeah, absolutely, Amory. And I think it's always amazing to me. It's because we work with local partners and local distributors that we are able to have so much more um, local data and insights into the market. So you're absolutely right. The the study we did on Indonesia that was looking at the oil and gas, both upstream and downstream, it's going back to Ryan's point of getting really localized. So we're looking at Indonesia and then an industry within Indonesia. And we can do this for a lot of different markets because we work with our distribution network and have a lot of local insights. And again, here, we're very picky in our distributors and um, ex- experts research team is as rigorous as um, um, as as Hogan is, so that's yeah. I it's fabulous to work with distributors like that. Well, Krista Amory, this has been a great discussion. I do have one more question before we let you go, and that is, you know, with everything we discussed today, what does that mean for cross border business and international human resource management? Great question, Blake. Use an assessment. (laughs) Use Hogan assessments not only for measuring individuals, but also for measuring overall organizational trends, for understanding the market that you're in. Uh, I think one really eye-opener, as I've learned a lot more about Hogan and our cross-cultural applications, is you can use personality to be a really effective tool for practitioners, for Uh, businesses and organizations who are wanting to know more about um, cross-cultural business. And so I think that one theme that we've talked about several times throughout today, but it's really make sure that you don't underuse the assessments. You know, a lot of organizations, you know, assess for a talent program, but you can also look at the organizational culture, look at the team culture, look at how individuals within a team interact and how even teams across an organizational uh, interact and even look at different regions. So you can do so much with our, our assessments, but it's really important that you do use an assessment in order to um, really be able to measure um, this. That's a really great point, Krista, and I think the the most important one. Um, the other, if I have to uh, some sum up some of the conversation that we had today too is um, we we I think something Krista and I would like our listeners to take away from today's episode is look beyond general cultural style, uh, stereotypes um, and and invest some effort in becoming like aware of your own culture's leadership expectations but also what are some implications in terms of uh, how how this may play in terms of unconscious biases for you. Um, that will be, especially if you're a leader, that will be very important in, um, in helping you succeed in working with people from different backgrounds or just people in general now today in, in, in today's globalized market. Well, I think uh, both of you put that absolutely beautifully. I don't think I can add any more to, to those two uh, summary points. So I just want to say thanks so much uh, to both Krista and Anne-Marie for, um, for joining us on today's episode. Always great to work with you two. Always great to chat with you. And, and thanks so much for sharing your insights from, from our global markets with us today. Yeah, absolutely, Brian. We're happy to, like I mentioned before, this is really um, an area that I'm passionate about. And Hogan has done so much that we don't really talk that much about. And so always happy to join you and discuss cross-cultural topics. 
Same for me. And thank you so much, Ryan and Blake, for having us. Um, it's really nice to connect remotely with our um, with our HQ uh, colleagues. Yeah, thank you. And we we always enjoy working with both um, you, Ryan, and you, Blake. So thank you so much. Well, I appreciate both of you coming on and joining us for this episode. I think our audience is really going to, going to enjoy it because, uh, again, they're our audience is, is all over the world, and I think this will this will really hit home with a lot of them. And I would be more than happy to travel over on that side of the globe and see you all hopefully in 2024. So so let's get Come that on, on over. the agenda. Yeah, we'll we'll bring you to Tasmania. Oh, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, uh, thank you again. And uh, that that does it for the Science of Personality podcast, episode 90. Be sure to join us in two weeks for another fun and informative episode. Cheers, everybody. This has been the Science of Personality podcast brought to you by Hogan Assessments. You can access all podcast episodes on our website, scienceofpersonality.com, or on the streaming service of your choice. See you next time.